This episode of Women on the Rise is sponsored by The Riveter, a workspace designed for women and their advocates. Stay tuned to the end for more information about how you can join The Riveter's movement and ambition. I think we've spent too long talking about work-life balance, which is basically all the chores you do at home and your responsibilities at home and all the chores you do at work and your responsibilities at work, and that they really need to get folded into a larger conversation about balance and about presence, about really showing up for what your opportunities are and the people in front of you in a way that is whole and centered and doesn't completely exhaust you. Welcome to Women on the Rise. I'm your host, Laura Dolch, and each week I talk to thriving women about the practical self-care strategies they use to fuel their success and pursue what's most important to them in their careers and lives. We get real about topics like healthy eating, exercise, sleep, stress, time management, happiness, and productivity, while busting myths about work-life balance and being perfect along the way. My goal each week is to uncover a new insight or practical strategy that you can immediately apply to your life to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Sally Helgeson, author, speaker, consultant, and women's leadership expert. Sally's most recent book, How Women Rise, co-authored with legendary executive coach Marshall Goldsmith, examines the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women. Sally has been identified by Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership and was named by Leadership Excellence Magazine as one of the top 50 authorities on leadership. Since the publication of her classic book, The Female Advantage, in 1990, Sally's primary mission has been to help women around the world recognize, articulate, and act on their greatest strengths. We talked about why Sally believes that self-care is essential to being a more present and effective leader and how to create the conditions that allow you to prioritize it. How the habits outlined in Sally's book, including the disease to please, the perfection trap, and overvaluing expertise undermine not only your rise to the top of your career, but your self-care and personal presence. The success-blocking habit that even Congressional Medal of Honor winners sometimes fall into. How to begin experimenting with different behaviors to break old habits and replace them with new, more effective habits. And the wake-up call at a speaking engagement that prompted Sally to evaluate her own self-defeating habits. Enjoy this powerful and practical interview, and be sure to pick up a copy of How Women Rise. I can't recommend it highly enough. Sally, can you just give maybe a brief overview of your work in women's leadership just to sort of set the stage for our conversation? Certainly, uh, Lara. I've been working in women's leadership for 30 years. I got into it because I was in corporate communications and I saw what a poor job the companies that I worked for were doing of understanding what women had to contribute. So that was really my guiding impulse in getting in. Started with a book that tried to address that called The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, which was the first book to focus on what women had to contribute to organizations rather than how they needed to change and adapt. It took off, so I stayed with it and have since written six more books and lots of articles and done workshops and seminars and different kinds of programs all over the world now since 1990. And my mission has pretty much always been the same, which is to help women to recognize, articulate, and act on their greatest strengths. So it's been pretty consistent in terms of that. And everything I've done has tried to build on that and also help organizations develop more inclusive culture where um, women's talents, among others, can thrive. 
And isn't it crazy that the yearbook was sort of the first time to look at what women could contribute? It's just so interesting to me that that was, yeah, that that was the first time <laughs> that someone had looked at that. But thank you for doing that. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. well, and it's so interesting to me because I, you know, I obviously, um, we met at an event where you were speaking about your newest book, How Women Rise. And of course, the title of the book is what originally drew me to it because, you know, of the name of this podcast. And having read it now, it's, I just think it's so important for women to read. And I'm going to read some of your other books too. But I think this one is so important so that women can understand how they're getting in their own way. And I would love to hear from you because the topic of this podcast has to do with self-care and how that factors into success. Can you talk a little bit about where where you think the self-care conversation fits into the larger conversation about women's leadership and empowerment? First of all, I think it's absolutely essential. I think we've spent too long talking about work-life balance, which is basically all the chores you do at home and your responsibilities at home and all the chores you do at work and your responsibilities at work and that they really need to get folded into a a larger conversation about balance and about presence, about really showing up for what your opportunities are and the people in front of you in a way that is whole and centered and doesn't completely exhaust you. I think it's a really key topic now because the 24-7 technologies that have, have made balance a topic for everyone because they are programmed to exhaust us. We do not live in digital time and they do, so we can't keep up with them. And what I've seen, I've really been encouraged in the last year or two to see a lot more focus on that, a lot more support in organizations for being able to turn your devices off and not be responsive every single moment. Because if you are, if you're always responding, it puts you in a state of vigilance which leads to hypervigilance, which in turn leads to chronic stress. And you have very few ways to restore yourself. So it's a very, very important topic. And I would venture to say that it's at its most important for women, not only because of the uh, multiple responsibilities that we have, which, as we know, things are changing. So men are taking more of those responsibilities at home. That's certainly a trend. But in addition to that, women do have this capacity for really noticing and scanning the environment, which is something I wrote about in the book before this, The Female Vision. And that gives them a lot of information, which is powerful and important and part of their leadership capacity. But it can also be destabilizing because you're noticing a lot, you're aware of a lot, so you can be trying to respond to a lot at the same time and and it can push you into stress. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that you frame it in, in around presence because I noticed that what you just described, that is a, a definitely a challenge for me, that scanning and always like, I feel like, you know, I've had friends say to me, your brain is always going. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and so, you know, trying to kind of tamp that down, but, but in service to, as you said, being present, yes. right. And yes. Billy, being present for the people in front of you. It's so important, you know, 30 years people have said, you know, what what do women need to do to build leadership presence? You know, should they carry a purse? Is it your handshake? You know, do you need voice training? You know, the most important thing you need to do to develop leadership presence is to be present for what's happening now. And every superb leader who had a strong leadership presence had the capacity to filter out information and show up for what they were doing now. So, 
creating the conditions where that's possible, I believe, is what can support long-term sustainable and powerful leadership presence. Mm, Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how to create those conditions, like (laughs) things that you've seen work for women? Well, one thing that I often have been advocating for years is that it's important to the extent that's possible to serve as your own HR department. That is, be very clear about not just what your priorities are, but how you use your time, how you use your technology, when you respond uh, to people. So you don't keep getting sidetracked by being overly responsive. And then the behaviors also or the habits that uh, my co-author, Marshall Goldsmith, and I focus on in How Women Rise, dealing with some of those habits can also can also go a long way uh, to being able to establish that strong leadership presence, which um, is something I assume we'll be talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, it's funny, I I have a feeling that habit number eight in the book, which is the disease to please, may be yeah. a particular area <laughs> where I, I just imagine that, and I see this with my clients too, where women who are very focused on you know, pleasing everyone else absolutely undervalue their focus on their own self-care. Have you seen that as well? Oh, definitely. I think the disease to please is one of the most destabilizing in terms of balance and presence because you're always, you know, trying to trying to please others. But really when I thought about it and I was thinking about the topic of self-care, we've got 12 behaviors in the book, but I would say that about 5 of them, 5 or 6 of them directly relate to this topic. The disease to please, certainly, but also perfectionism, also overemphasizing expertise. So you're focused in and always trying to become an expert on your topic. Ruminating absolutely undermines that. And minimizing does as well. That habit of either through your physical responses or how you verbalize, always minimizing um, what you have to contribute and sending a message ultimately, that you don't deserve to take up the space you inhabit. So mm-hmm. so those are all behaviors that can really get in the way of creating a strong presence and the kind of presence that will also keep you centered and balanced in a very busy, technology-rich and extremely demanding period in which we are all living. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I, it's funny. I Ruminating and the you know perfectionism were the two that really rose to the top for me as far as when I was reading and t- thinking about the self-care angle. But you're absolutely right. The oversizing overemphasizing expertise and minimizing totally. And I, you know, I find it so interesting that especially with ruminating, I think probably because I tend to fall into that trap or used to. I've I've uh-huh. definitely worked on that. Yeah. But can you I I would love thinking about those habits. Yes. You know, how they specifically keep women from taking action in general, and towards self-care. Exactly. Well, let's start with perfectionism, because I think in many cases, ruminating is almost a consequence of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not always allied, but they often are. So with perfection, perfection is that commitment to to that belief that it's an either-or world, and either you do things perfectly, or um, or you completely screwed up, and you know, you're a mess, and everything like that. And by the way, People who, and particularly women, who have that expectation of themselves often have that expectation of others, which is often then disappointed. So it, it's, it's a very pernicious habit. It tends to penalize you more 
as you rise higher in an organization or in your business, whatever you're doing, it tends to be more problematic. We have research in how women rise that shows that women tend to be rewarded for being precise and correct, whereas men tend to be rewarded in organizations for being strategic and thinking big picture. And guess which characteristics are most valued at the highest level? Not precision and correctness. So women invest a lot and they're rewarded. So they invest a lot in that. But there are two problems. First of all, doesn't position you very well for the top because that's not what they're looking for. And secondly, it creates a lot of stress, always feeling like everything must be precise and correct, or you've really messed it up or other people have messed it up, creates stress for you because it's an unattainable ideal in some ways. Every, we're human, so we do mess things up and other people do too, but it also creates stress for other people. And, you know, as I may have mentioned uh, when I did my program in Seattle, I, uh, I've been working at this 30 years and I've never heard anybody say I work for a perfectionistic boss and I love it. <laughs> when you're being uh, demanding perfection of yourself and yeah. demanding it of others. So it is an inherently unbalanced approach and it tends to keep also in answer to your question, it tends to keep you, you paralyzed because you feel if I can't do this perfectly, I can't move on or I'm going to get this perfect before I move on. And it may be time to move on. So you get very attached to your behavior. Rumination, which is going over and over and over mistakes and sort of internally beating yourself up about them and focusing on them is often a consequence of perfectionism. It, it leads fairly quickly to paralysis. And, you know, it's interesting when you interview people who ruminate a lot and you talk with them about it, they see it as a behavior that really serves them by, you know, well, if I don't really think about this and if I don't really analyze it, I'm never going to be able to, you know, make improvements. And actually, that's not true. Overanalyzing, you know, there's a reason that 12-step programs say analysis is paralysis, because it is. And ruminating is often justified or rationalized as analysis, but it does tend to keep you paralyzed. So developing the skill of being able to let go and give yourself a break is really important. Marshall has been a coach for 35 years, and he's coached women and men all over the world, more men, because he tends to coach CEOs. But uh, he said he has never once worked with a woman ever whether Congressional Medal of Honor winner, CEO, whatever, where he has not had to at some point say, please don't be so hard on yourself. So it is not a behavior that serves our interest and can really take us down a rabbit hole. And certainly nothing is more inimical to self-care than rumination. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I, I see, I I call it sort of the all or nothing trap. I mean, that's kind of how it manifests in my client base and, and also this idea of creating a grand plan, right? So rather than looking at small changes, it's, it's all, it's all in service to this perfectionist tendency and it does, it really gets in the way for these women in terms of making changes that are sustainable because they hold themselves to such a high standard and also have been exposed to very rigid sorts of, whether they're diets or exercise plans or whatever, very yeah, rigid things. Right. There are rules. There are lots of rules. Right. And if you fail at meeting all those rules, you've just failed. 
Right, exactly. And so it's the, you know, it's the old conundrum about, okay, well, I, I, you know, didn't take my cocktail of 32 vitamins this morning, so I might as well have a chocolate croissant. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. We all have. We all have. Yeah. Which yeah. actually makes me, you know, one of the other things I found really interesting about what you were talking about, mostly because I'm a student of psychology and especially, you know, positive psychology, the field of positive yeah. psychology, you talk about the importance of awareness and of experimenting with, you know, awareness about what you're doing and, and with experimenting with new responses. In fact, there's a, a quote from the book where you say to get unstuck to let go of a behavior that's no longer serving you, you need to first of all recognize it as a habit. You need to bring it to conscious awareness so that you can begin to try out new responses and see if these get you different results. And I love that approach, that experimental approach. Can you talk a little bit about how we can begin doing that? Yeah, well, the the part, you know, I think that one of the things that's very intentional in the book that we use the language around habits, because these are habits. And as habits, they can be broken, you know, given the, the principle of adult neuroplasticity, which we didn't used to believe in, that as an adult, you can change behaviors that have been ingrained and that can seem like you, but they're not you. They are habits that you've fallen into. So the first step really is, of course, recognizing what and naming the habit that's keeping you stuck. And then that experimental part, I think, is 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 really very powerful. It's not like you're waking up the next day being a brand new me, committing to that. No, you're just taking a little part of a behavior and you're seeing what it would look like to work on that. And, um, and one of the, the, the major things, and I think this is one of the biggest takeaways in the book, is that it's really useful to involve other people as you're trying to do that. Um, if you say you identify, you know, one of the behaviors we have in there is too much offering, too much information, too many words, too much disclosure. The need to be more concise when you communicate. So say you identify that as, as a habit, you've had some feedback on it. Then, you know, instead of just saying, I'm going to be more concise, you know, you, you ask people around you, you know, say, I'm, I'm working to become more concise. I've had some feedback that I can be a little rambling, offer too much, too much background to start. Could you just watch me in this meeting and see See if you notice anything that you think might be more effective, or you could go to somebody who's very concise and say, hey, you know, I'm trying to get more concise. You're, you're very concise in your presentations, yet you seem to cover the essential information. Do you have any advice uh, in terms of preparation? So this gives you just more information about small behaviors you might start out practicing new behaviors, because you want to identify a behavior that you want to let go of, but then you need to identify what's going to replace it, what's going to come in its, in its place. So the more you can do that together, and I think in involving other people, I mean, this is really the brilliance of Marshall's stakeholder-centered approach to coaching and executive development. The more you can do that, the, the more ideas you're going to have, the more things you're going to have to, to try out, and the more immediate feedback you're going to get, hey, you really did a great job there. I saw what you did differently was X, Y, and Z. You might not even necessarily be aware of that. And I, I think that's, that's, um, that's a very powerful way to start. Yeah. Well, and I also think the what you're saying about finding small things that you can sort of tweak or change and that experimental mindset is something that it takes the pressure off, right? Yes. It's sort of like, it helps... Right you know, diffuse that perfectionist thing, isn't it? You're just testing something, right? It's just... That's exactly right. 
Yeah, that's what I mean. It's not like a whole new me. So it's the difference between, you know, next Wednesday, I'm going to begin a total detox program. And then you wake up in the morning and you think, boy, I'd really like a cup of coffee. No, it's not on the detox. You know, instead, like, well, I'm going to eliminate the two cookies I usually have with my afternoon tea. It's easier. There's more likelihood of success. And there's more likelihood to build on that than than the other. And we really fallen into the, you know, the detox approach uh, yes. here in the US. And it's problematic. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And it's, it's interesting. I see we're so brainwashed into that sort of framework or, you know, many of the women that come to me have just think that's the way it's, they often feel uncomfortable with the approach that you're talking about, the, yeah. the small changes, the experimental. And, and I often have to talk them off the ledge. I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> They're like, are you going to give me more rules? I'm like, no, actually I'm not. Let's just do this one thing right now. <laughs> and it's-, well, it's true. And just what you're saying is really important. I mean, one of the things we talk about in the book is, you know, we all have a to-do list. I've got mine right here, but it's also helpful to have a to-don't list, you know, things you can that. let go of, things take a look at that list and say, you know, on a scale of one to 10 or one to five, what is not really, really essential here? And can I, you know, let it go or find a way of, you know, maybe it's a a conversation I've booked for 45 minutes. Then you really need 45 minutes. Can I do it in 20 minutes and then take a little walk? Yeah, probably so. Hey, it's Lara here. Wanted to take a quick break from the interview to invite you to my new monthly online workshop series. It's designed to help you get out of your own way and make being healthy feel easy and intuitive instead of stressful and overwhelming. And it's totally free. So consider this your personal invitation to join in. Visit laradolch.com slash workshops to save your spot in upcoming workshops. That's laradolch.com slash workshops. Well, and you were talking earlier about Marshall and just coaching in general. And one of the things I thought was interesting in the book was talking about coaches as disruptors. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that means and how it helps people create change? Well, I think one of the reasons, and there are many reasons, but one of the reasons coaching is so effective is you have someone to hold you to account for the changes you say you want to make. So, you know, the, we're busy, we're all busy. And you can make a commitment to something, but then get completely distracted by it because you're doing 10 other things and half the day goes by and you, you think, you know, like I did the other day. Oh, right. I'm supposed to be breathing. But if you have, <laughs> but if you, if you have somebody who's involved in the process and can kind of bring you back to what you're supposed to be doing, that's very powerful. I think coaching is, you know, one of the great things we've got. Not everybody can have a coach, which is one of the reasons that in the book we talk uh, to some degree about peer coaching and using peer coaching as an instrument for addressing behaviors. It's something I personally have used for nine years. I've been working with a peer coach and have made huge uh, strides on certain areas and and habits that were problematic for me. Mm-hmm. I love that you shared that in the book. I actually made a note about that. And, and immediately as I was reading your story about how long you've been working with your peer coach, someone popped into my head about, you know, who I could do yeah. that with. So thank you for for putting that idea in my in my head. But yeah. yeah. Well, and I would love to talk a little bit more about you sort of personally and how you define wellness or, you know, being well, however you want to frame that at this point in your life. Well, I'll tell you, it's something I've been thinking a lot about because I have been on 
essentially a four-month road trip doing promotion around How Women Rise. Uh, a little break now, and then the How Women Rise India uh, tour kicks off in uh, August. Wow. So it's uh, it's been pretty intense. I found it really helpful. A friend of mine who's also a, a coach, and I think she's in the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches group as well, Edie Greenblatt. I ran into her in a conference in D.C., and she had a, she's a, she has a lot of medical background. I think she was at Harvard Medical School, but she has a book called Restore Yourself. And it's about ways of really thinking about how you restore yourself. And at the very top is sleep. And she talks about how, you know, we're, we're very focused on exercise and diet and everything like that. But the, the, um, the, the evidence really shows that sleep is very, very, very important. So I started thinking of that. I'm pretty good about asserting boundaries. When I look at these behaviors, I have or have had a lot of them in my life, but I don't really have that disease to please and never have. And as a result, I'm pretty comfortable asserting my boundaries and understanding what is going to restore me and what is going to deplete me. Last week, I was participating in a conference in San Diego. And it was very intense and it was great and it was exciting. But it was pretty much seven, you know, the first day was about seven to 10 because we all went to a party afterwards. And then the next night, there was a big dinner at a restaurant and I just knew it wasn't for me. I'd been with people all day. I, you know, either I was on or they were on. So I just asked a very quiet, undemanding participant who I didn't know that well and was interested in knowing better, if he wanted to walk across the street to a really bad Chinese restaurant and (laughs) (laughs) we were out in the middle of the suburbs and just have a quiet meal at at six o'clock. And we did that and it was really nice. And so I think it's very, very, you know, it goes back to that thing of being your own HR department, being really intentional about how you use your time and your technology when there's any possibility of discretion as there was there mm-hmm. and being clear about you know what what restores you and what exhausts you and there's lots of information on that you know by experience you might know from a Myers Briggs you know if you're an I you you want to draw back if you're an E you know you're going to get uh, uh, an extrovert, you're going to get more energy from being with a crowd. So I think all those things can be very helpful. But it's certainly a topic I've been thinking a lot about. And I'm very, you know, careful and clear with clients in advance also. You know, I I want to come in a day early, you know, if I do. And, you know, I need a swimming pool at my hotel, stuff like that. So yeah. I really try to uh, to be as intentional as I can. I mean, obviously, it can't happen all the time. And I've shown up where the swimming pool was actually a so-called plunge pool. And it was just filled with people drinking. So that's not <laughs> what I'm working down there with my bathing cap. But, you know, I, as much as I can, I, I try to create the conditions I know will be restorative to, for me. Yeah. And what do you notice when you don't make those choices or you don't have those things like about, you know, what happens? <laughs> What happens is I can't shut my mind off. I'm constantly thinking through the logistics of what I'm doing. And I notice, as I mentioned earlier, that I've just forgotten to breathe. Mm. So that thing of stress and not being able to restore and kind of get that downtime you need before you, you know, move forward, when you Mm. don't have that, you begin to lose control of sort of your autonomic uh, system. So you find yourself not breathing. You find yourself 
going over and over potential concerns in a slightly obsessive way and not really being able to not being able to relax. And I find myself also getting impatience, which is sort of my besetting character default, if you will. So I need to create conditions that that help me be a more patient person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and in addition to sleep, so I, by the way, I have to like absolutely agree with you on the sleep and, and well, I don't even have to agree with you. Like you yeah. said, there's research to show that, <laughs> yeah. but oh, I, yeah. I often say to people, if you do nothing else, get your sleep sorted and you know, the food and the exercise and the, all the other stuff tends to fall into place when you get yeah. sleep sorted. So I'm yeah. so glad that you shared that. What other daily habits besides that, besides keeping sleep, you know, a priority, what other daily habits do you think most contribute to your ability to, to show up for your work? And, and the people in your life? Well, I would say number one is my morning. How I find that if I get my first hour right, then the rest of the day usually falls into place unless something, you know, arises totally unforeseen. And this is I start with a Pilates physical therapy routine I have. I mean, just the minute I get out of bed, I hit the floor on that. Um, and then I always meditate. And I try to spend as much time as I can outside. I find that very restorative. You may, your listeners may notice that I'm outside right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Here's some birds. Um, but uh, especially in the morning when I have my first cup of coffee, unless it's freezing or unless I'm in just some dreary motel surrounded by you know, trucks in the parking lot, I, I try to get that little time in outdoors. And I find that very essential. And, you know, I can do my meditation there. And um, so those are the things I really find that how I start the day has a big impact on on how the day goes for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I used to be a Pilates instructor. So in New York, oh, actually, okay. yeah, I so love, I love I, that. I love it. That's great. That's great. I'm glad that it sounds like you've got your morning routine really dialed in, which absolutely, I agree that can be really transformative, even if you only have 10 minutes, you know, running through some of those things. Yeah, it it happens. Sometimes I shorten it, but I, I try to get those three things in. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I think that's, that's really wise to have it be sort of scalable is, is sort of how I think about that. You know, it can shrink or expand depending on the time that you have, but it always happens. Yeah. Yeah. Was there a turning point in your life where self-care became, you know, you sort of an experience that maybe woke you up to the, to its importance in your life? You know, it's, I, I have, I think of self-care, you know, in an expansive way. Some of it is the kinds of practices we've just been talking about. Other is addressing habits that undermine your ability to really be present and to care for yourself. And I talk about that to some degree in the book. I don't frame it that way, but I had a really, you know, I've earned my living primarily as a speaker and doing workshops and uh, other leadership programs for many decades. And I've always been, you know, I'm a very conscientious, a student type woman, you know, perfectionist, overemphasizing expertise, all those kinds of things. And I was doing a program with Marshall. I write about this in the book. Years ago, you know, before this book was, you know, ever thought of, this is over 10 years ago, and um, it was a big defense contractor, and I won't go into all the details, but, you know, Marshall just kind of showed up to have fun, and he's got great content, and he knows who he is, and 
you know, he had what to me would have been disaster after disaster. He, he didn't have his pants with him. We had to go out and find some pants. To begin, he was wearing cutoffs in the lobby of this fancy hotel in Providence where we were meeting the client. You know, he tumbled out of the bathroom and hit his head in front of the entire audience. He, he got his time wrong when he had to leave and his beeper went off. That shows you it was a while ago. And he said, oh, 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 I got my flight time wrong. I got to leave. Well, you're in Sally's capable hands. And I was just, you know, I thought any of these things that happened to me in my life would be a living hell. And, but it wasn't true for him. He was very relaxed through the whole thing. And I had worked myself up into a lather of over-preparation. We were in Providence. I had some, you know, the Italian restaurants in Providence are some of the best in the country. And I had some friends who wanted to go to dinner with me. No, I'm going to stay in my hotel and work on my remarks. You know, I'm going to show up and be the perfect person and deliver all my content and, you know, really be as conscientious as I can. I was being very perfectionistic about it. And he was being so far from perfectionistic. But you know what? I realized at the end, the audience liked him better than they liked me. Mm. They did because he was modeling what a relaxed, self-accepting human being looked like. And I was modeling what an uptight, perfectionistic person who was overemphasizing their own content, which is, you know, my expertise. And so they resonated more with him. And I thought, you know, I, I need to prepare differently. I need to think differently. I need to be more focused on my own ability to relax and be present and trust that I have the content. You know, I've written seven books in this field and, you know, I, I've, I've been in it for a while. I'm, I'm not going to be exposed as a fraud. I'm not. So I need to be more relaxed and I need to focus on the things that will help me show up in that way rather than obsessively trying to prepare for the big exam in the sky, which has been my usual approach. So that was very, very helpful. And ironically, it kind of seems ironic, but yet fitting that that would be an an experience working with Marshall. And then we'd end up writing this book about these habits. So it was for me a big aha. Well, and I love that you broadened the scope of self-care there because you're right. It's it's so much bigger than food and yeah. exercise and sleep. Yes. And, you know, a lot of this is absolutely self-care. I, ve- I very much resonated with that story in the book. I found myself <laughs> nodding my head the whole time. Well, and it's funny, it reminded me of, uh, I was giving a talk, this was a number of years ago, and I was back East visiting my family just before this talk was happening and I was stressed out about it. And my brother-in-law actually said to me, Lara, you know the content. So just know that you know it and go. Right, <laughs> so exactly. It's, a, it's exactly right, right? It's just the the wisdom of the wisdom of men, just a different yeah. type of wisdom, right? Then exactly. I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a coach, and she told me, she said, you know, I've been working with this woman who really been struggling, and she ended up, you know, really succeeding huge. She ended up with her dream job after working with my friend for a year. And they went out to a sort of celebratory lunch. And my friend Julie said, you know, what was the most helpful thing that I ever said to you? And she said, men move on. <laughs> you know, yes. it's just like, you know, okay, that happened. Time to move on. And she said, I just, every time I'd sit in a meeting with these big shots and I'd be like so tense and nervous, 
uh, about something I just said, I would think, you know, men move on and I could just make myself do it. Not that we're aspiring to be like men here, but they have a few tricks to teach us as we have a few tricks to teach them, I might add. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and that sort of saying, oh, well, that you talk about in the book. I've, I've used that a few times since then. I'm like, oh, that does help. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That, that, that resonates a lot. In fact, I've been meaning for a couple months to get a button printed up in the color, (laughs) the wonderful Tiffany blue of the book cover that says, oh, well, because, you know, it's another little trick I picked up from Marshall writing the book. He missed a phone call and his assistant called him. We were working together in New York, his office and, you know, life are in San Diego. And I heard him. He said, oh, I missed a, okay, Dr. Kim. All right, I'll come back. Oh, and he turned to me and he said, oh, well, <laughs> I knew who Dr. Kim was, you know, he was the CEO of the World Bank and he missed the call. And I thought, wow, his response was, oh, well, it wasn't like, oh, my God. God, what an idiot I am, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, okay, I'm going to, I made a big, um, I, I used the largest font my printer would accommodate, made a big sign above my desk that said, oh, well. I love that. That's so, and that's such a great place to wrap things up, actually, just to remind <laughs> women that we don't have to be so hard on ourselves. What's yeah. next for you, Sally? What are you excited about? Well, I'm very excited. We're going to, um, as I mentioned, I've been on a basically a four-month road trip with this book since a month before it came out. Uh, I get to spend a couple weeks at home. We're doing a big promotion in India, How Women Rise. Anybody wants to look at our LinkedIn uh, pages of me or Marshall, we'll see pictures of Bollywood stars reading How Women Rise on planes, etc. So it's going to be a big deal. And I'm looking forward to that. But really for right now, I want, I think there is tremendous value in this book. Um, and it is probably more practical and more applicable to people's lives than anything I've written. And I do feel, I do know that what I've written has been very, very helpful in the past. But, but this has a specificity and, a, and a, an ability to really apply. So my plan is to probably spend the next three or four years just developing this material, doing more, you know, creating workshops of various lengths. I already have some books, so I better do it of various lengths based on the material, getting the kinds of exercises that will be helpful to people, doing coaching around it. That's starting to just flow in. And uh, so that's really where my focus is going to be. I don't want to be looking to the next project. I want to be looking at, you know, what are the projects and opportunities to really get this, to just spur this conversation and get this material out to as many women around the world as we can. I feel that so often younger women came up, come up who've read it and say, oh boy, now I can prevent, you know, I cannot make these mistakes that I've seen other women make. And then I hear women, you know, more my age or younger saying, oh, I wish I'd had this 20 years ago, (laughs) which is how I feel as well. But, um, you know, real goal here is to get women at a place of real belief in their, their competency, the validity of their ambition, and their right to take up space at an earlier stage. You know, it's, it's, for a while, it, it, it was really women got there in their 50s, tended to get there in their 50s. Then it got a little bit younger. You know, let's see if we can make that happen in, in the 30s. Um, and that seems to me like a worthwhile goal. So I really am just, I'm going to continue with what my mission has been, but act on that based on what we've developed in this book. 
That's great. I love that. And where's the best place for people to learn more about you? Well, my website, sallyhelgeson.com. It's got a contact button there for anybody who wants to get in touch with me at my email, sally at sallyhelgeson.com. But also I'm, I'm, I'm getting better on LinkedIn. I'm not a social media genius by any <laughs> uh, point, but I, I've, I've enjoyed LinkedIn. And uh, so people, you know, I welcome people getting in touch with me through LinkedIn. I also have uh, people helping me with Facebook and Twitter, but I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not very good about responding. So LinkedIn is the best. Perfect. I'll put all those links in the show notes. And thank you so much, Sally, first of all, for speaking with me, but also just for all of the work that you're doing to support women and their personal and professional development. Good. Thank you so much, Laura. I've really enjoyed it. That's it for this week's episode of Women on the Rise. Visit lauradolch.com slash podcast for show notes and resources mentioned in this episode. You can download other episodes of this podcast and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review the podcast. It really helps me out. This episode was produced by me with editing help from Dave Nelson at Lens Group Media. Tune in every week for new interviews that give you the practical tools you need to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. The Riveter is a women-forward workspace designed for community, work, and wellness. Not just a desk and a co-working space, The Riveter is a transformative movement for all women and their advocates to invite ambition. The Riveter provides the support, resources, and amenities to build successful businesses. Their members are entrepreneurs, remote workers, consultants, and everyone in between. They even have a community membership plan that provides access to professional development and fitness programming without the desk. The Riveter now has two locations in Seattle's Capitol Hill and Fremont neighborhoods, and a third location in West LA with more locations coming soon. If you're interested, visit info.theriveter.co, that's C-O, slash women on the rise for a special offer for women on the rise listeners. That's info.theriveter.co slash women on the rise.